I'm really pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Anna Gorman. Anna Gorman is a senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, a nonprofit health news service. She writes for media outlets nationwide, including CNN, NPR, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic. She received a National Press Club Award for reporting in 2017. Congratulations. Thank you. And previously spent nearly 15 years covering health and immigration at a paper called the Los Angeles Times. <laughs> Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Anna Gorman. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I'm going to do very quick introductions because you can read more about our panelists uh, at another point, and then we're going to jump right into the discussion. But to my right is Chancellor Gene Block. He's a biobehavioral scientist, and under his leadership for the topic tonight, UCLA has launched a Depression Grand Challenge, which aims to reduce the health and economic impacts of depression by half by the year 2050. To his right is Rhonda Robinson Beal. She's a senior vice president and chief medical officer for Blue Cross of Idaho, where there is not snow yet, apparently. She also serves on the advisory council for the National Institute of Mental Health, the lead federal agency for research on mental disorders. To her right is Dr. Jonathan Flint, a psychiatrist and behavioral geneticist at UCLA. He's leading a 100,000 person study to discover the causes of depression, which is the largest ever genetic study of a single disorder. And finally, on to his right is Darcy Gretadaro. She's the director of the Center for Workplace Mental Health at the American Psychiatric Association Foundation. She previously served as the policy director for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So let's start with Chancellor. The Depression Grand Challenge is a massive undertaking to better understand and treat the disease. So why is UCLA prioritizing this? And tell us a little bit about what you're doing across the campus. So, you know, this is an enormous problem, as we know. I think it affects something like 350 million people worldwide. So it's one of the major health, maybe the major health problem facing the world, and yet as we looked around at many institutions, it wasn't the primary focus of many medical centers which focus on important neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's. Most universities have an Alzheimer's center. This was an area that seemed to be not, not ignored, but not focused on, so that was, that was one thing. We also had a, an extraordinary amount of expertise on campus in this area, so we thought if one's going to focus on an important societal issue and, and, uh, and make, make a difference, it would be good to focus on something that isn't, uh, isn't in everyone's wheelhouse and something that we could really, really specialize in. So we're very excited to begin this effort. And it's unusual. It's not a health center uh, effort exclusively. It actually crosses a campus. About 100 investigators are involved. Every school is involved because it's, it's, uh, it's multifaceted, the issues of depression. And uh, so it's a, it certainly has immersed our entire school from a research perspective. But also, not only are we, uh, we a research institute, we are also an employer. We also have students. And none of us are, uh, are free from, from dealing with these issues. So the, you know, we, we really feel that it's not only can we, we learn a lot about this and hopefully provide some cures uh, broadly, but we also help our own community as well. One of the most exciting things I think is about this Depression Grand Challenge is the screening of students, that you're offering free depression screening to all incoming students. So how important is it to recognize depression at that stage, and what are you doing for students who, who screen positive? Yeah, so the belief is that you know, if you can catch some of these issues early, you can provide remedies that, that are less involved and less, uh, less complex to deliver. Uh, and, but you have to screen to do. You have to screen broadly to do this. So we did something I think that's rather bold, and I think it's probably the, only, the largest effort in, in any uh, institution in the country. We offered all students an opportunity to be screened, of which. 3,000 in our first, and we're, this will take time to get everyone involved, but 3,000 students initially uh, took a, a brief screening survey that helped identify who needs further follow-up. So with that, there were uh, several hundred students who required what we considered online training for you know, mild, sort of mild depression, sadness, that is pretty effective training online. So we were able to reach a lot of the students early uh, online. Others were more serious, and we had to recommend other types of treatment for them. But I think the idea of it's a multi-layered approach. You can't, when you go from retail to wholesale with an issue like this, <laughs> you can't treat everybody the same way. You have to figure out a multi-tiered level to be able to reach a lot of people effectively. So that's what we're developing. And part of this research program is to determine how to be effective at, at very various levels, but ideally to prevent 
problems before they get more serious. So it's almost a triage system. It is, exactly. So let me jump over to you, Jonathan. So we know there's many factors associated with depression, from life events to brain biology. And your research has focused on the genetic associations with the disease, which I think a lot of us aren't that familiar with. So what did you find, and, and how can it help lead to better treatment? So I think it's probably helpful if I just start explaining what we mean by we say that there's a genetic basis, because it's not like having a gene for cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease, things that most people might understand whether it's a single genetic cause. It's more that we know that there's a genetic predisposition and that varies from person to person and there's a very large environmental component as well. But the important point about the, the genetic component is we know it has to be a cause. So if we can find what the genetic contribution is, it really helps us understand what the biological basis of the condition might be. And that's, in theory at least, and we really hope this turns out to be true, a way of helping us design better therapies. And the work I did was in China, in fact. And we went to China because we wanted to find a group of people who we knew were very, very depressed. We needed a large number of those people. Why China? So... <laughs> <laughs> why, why are they more depressed than we are here? You should go there. <laughs> so we needed a very, very large population is the simple answer to that question. So if we, we're screening for a group who, who are really at the extremes of, uh, of the disease, where we can, where we can identify a, a more homogenous group. It's worth just emphasizing, maybe we'll discuss this a bit later, but it, it's, it's easy to, to think of depression as just being like heart disease maybe, like one thing, and it almost certainly isn't. And the reason that... Um, do doctors have a way of making the diagnosis. If you come to me as my patient, I'll, I'll ask you a lot of questions, and I'll come up with a set of criteria, which have been derived in a rather sort of ad hoc way. There's n they don't d depend on some understanding of the cause of the condition. And the consequences of this is that someone who's had a single episode uh, which may have lasted just the minimum, which will be two weeks, would, ha would have a, a diagnosis of depression. And that person is the same as somebody who's had multiple episodes, many suicide attempts, lost weight, poor sleeping. And both of those will be categorized as depression. But, you know, is that really the same condition? And there's a lot of evidence suggested that it's, that it's not. And we needed to find a group of people on, on the extremes where we could be pretty certain that there was a big genetic component so we could apply the genetic approaches which uh, help us to get at the biology. So where is the research going from here on, gen on the genetic links? So, well, what we did in China was to show that that approach worked, that we could actually find the genetic predisposition at a molecular level. That, that, that gives us like our first handhold on this condition. And that's important because, the, as I said, there's a big environmental component. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that bad things make you feel depressed. And for many, many years, we've been trying to understand what the environmental factors are. But the problem with that approach is that it's very hard to distinguish a cause from a consequence. Whereas in a genetic analysis, you know for certain. If you've got your hands on, the, on, a, on a genetic variant, you know that has to be in the, at the root of the causal pathway. So that allows us to then go back to the environmental components and actually begin to tease those apart as well. So it gives us both. And I think that's an important point because people tend to think that we, if you just work on the genetics, it's a, like a predetermined disease and we're only going to find the biology. That's not true. That's not how it works. It really gets us at both sides of the equation and it allows us to understand the condition in a much broader way. So that not only would it eventually we help hope allow us to develop new therapies, but it lets us to deploy the therapies we already have in a much more effective way. So at the moment, we have about a 50% chance of getting you better in three months if you see me as a, as a patient. It's not a good, good record. And I think it might that's maybe, maybe helpful for you to just to give you a little anecdote to, so you know what, what we're dealing with here. So I saw a woman in her mid-40s when I was practicing psychiatry in, in Oxford, a woman who, up until I'd seen her, had been working very effectively uh, as um, helping her husband run a, 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 an Italian restaurant. And she'd never had a psychiatric illness before, and for no apparent reason became extremely depressed. Drugs didn't really have any effect on this. Um, 
they eventually referred her to the psychiatrist to me and we tried changing the medication, we tried various things, talked to the family, no one could understand what was going on. And eventually this woman tried to kill herself. And we had to take her into the hospital then, which of course is a very difficult thing for a family to cope with. It's, it's uh, if you can imagine, it's not a, not a, I think, anything we would really want to happen to anybody. And this meant the family was even more upset. They were sort of arguing, angry with me, angry with themselves. Everyone wanted an explanation, wanted this problem to go away. And this woman just kept on getting worse and worse. And she stopped eating. And we then had to take drastic action. We had to try and save her life. And we did so by using a therapy which has a very bad reputation, which is electroconvulsive therapy. And within three days, she was showing an improvement. And a week later, I was able to discharge her. And when I see her in the outpatients clinic two weeks later, it's as if nothing has happened, apart from the fact that her family is so distraught and we've got the last four months of disaster to cope with. But in terms of her mood, we'd cured her. Now, had I known that we could have done that earlier on, we could have saved that family so much agony. So we do have treatments, but we don't know how they work. We don't know when they're going to be effective, and we don't know who to target them to. And the big advantage of the genetics and the approaches that we're developing is really to help us in this very difficult situation, so that rather than throwing darts at a dartboard blindfold, we can actually hit the target directly each time. That leads us perfectly into the next question, which is a little more about treatment, that despite this prevalence, that depression is very hard to treat. I, I recently did a story about a woman who was in a similar situation. She tried everything. She tried Tai Chi, she tried talk therapy, she tried medication, and for decades, nothing had worked. Um, so let me turn to Rhonda. So what does work and what doesn't work and how are services best delivered? Well, that's a good question. Uh, there are many approaches to treating depression. I think the most common that people see, particularly on TV, is the use of an antidepressant, Prozac. How many have heard about Prozac? Even to the point where they're now saying there's Prozac in the water because we've been peeing out all the Prozac. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but medications, unfortunately, um, only really affect 37% of the population on the first trial. So that means you have to try, the, the next protocol is to try a second antidepressant medication or to add a second to that first one that you have. And then only 67% 60, of the population may respond to that. So beyond that, what's been going on now is more research into things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, not as drastic as ECT, but it's putting um, a almost like a halo type thing on your head, and it just starts transmitting um, cranial stimulation, which has been shown to be very effective with some patients, not all. There's also vagal nerve stimulation, where you actually stimulate the vagal, vagus nerve, and that also has been found to be effective with some patients. But you're absolutely right. There is nothing that tells you when a patient walks through the door which one of these treatments that are going to be powerful or effective with them. There are some early studies that have been, do been done through the military where they're actually looking at EEGs and looking at the patterns within EEGs and being able to understand which EEG pattern or what type of brain responds to certain medications. So some of them will respond to antidepressants, SSRIs or SSNRIs, and then some actually will respond to stimulants for depression. So, you know, it's a very difficult situation. It's really trial and error, and I think that's the most unfortunate part about it. So we hope you hurry up and find the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the, the lifestyle factors? I mean, can, can things like exercise and um, yoga and meditation and some of those help treatment for, for different kinds of depression? They can certainly um, augment depression. If someone's severely depressed, exercising isn't alone is going to help. But it does help to, um, how would you say, the person if they're on their way to recovery, and also once they get into recovery to help them sustain that. Exercise is very powerful in terms of um, promoting um, good, what I call positive uh, brain chemistry. I'm not going to go into the technical terms there, but it really helps a great deal. I don't know 
many people when they exercise, how many go, come out of the gym feeling really good, like you've accomplished something? <laughs> well, that's part of what I would say are the types of things that people need to do to counteract and to help get themselves out of depressive moods. Doing things that are enjoyable may sound simple, but when I was treating patients, I would also say, why don't you go out to a comedy? Something that's going to make you laugh. Because that also helps a person to have a lighter mood and to begin to feel a lot better. That's real important. I know they sound like simple and stupid things, but it's a combination of all those things that are very important that they are infused in your life. Eliminating stress as much as possible, making sure that you do things that are relaxing to you. Always make sure you do something relaxing each day so that you kind of decaffect from all the stresses that you've been dealing with on a daily basis. All those things are very, very important because it helps your brain. And in the long run, it helps you to be more resilient against depression. I think that's probably a good lesson for all of us, depressed or not, right? right. To do something relaxing every day. So everybody remember that tomorrow. Um, Darcy, let me turn to you. So many people go undiagnosed. Um, even when people are diagnosed, they may not even seek care or treatment. I, I remember a young woman that I wrote about a year or two ago, she attempted suicide. She was a teenager and she didn't seek treatment until it was almost too late. So why are people seeking treatment later and how much of a role does stigma play in making people reluctant to seek out help? Well, stigma is definitely a major barrier. We see that in study after study and there are multiple reasons why stigma remains such an issue. I mean, part of it, or the, the fact that less than half the, of people with depression actually get treatment. Um, so very low rates of people seeking care and getting diagnosed and getting treatment when they have depression. And that comes from a number of factors. Part of it is the ongoing concern that they will be perceived, people will be perceived as weak or um, they will be perceived as someone who can't handle life and, you know, these kind of perceptions and myths that kind of pervade this idea of mental health and depression especially. Also, sometimes people don't know. They don't know they have the early warning signs. So they may just kind of write it off and say, oh, this is, you know, something that I'm going through. I'm going to get through it. They don't know when they start to have these same kind of experiences over a long period of time that they need to get help. So they wait. And also, I think just the societal messages that people can get around depression and mental health, this idea that you know, it means that I'm not uh, strong in the work context which we work in, people are concerned that others will find out, their coworkers will learn they have depression, their employers will learn, they may not, you know, it may impact their career advancement, and that's a, a big issue for people. They're very concerned that they won't be perceived as being really strong. And this is particularly important in some professions. I mean, the military is certainly an area where people um, have stigma running extremely high, sometimes culturally. Uh, there are some cultures and race and ethnicities where depression may not be perceived as um, something that you would get help for because it's really kind of a sign of weakness. And um, so there are all kinds of, and obviously I think as the chancellor said, what we know is the earlier you get help, I mean, screening is a really important thing. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force came out with a recommendation that people be screened for depression in primary care for teens and adults. So early, early diagnosis, early treatment can really lead to better result as it does for any health condition. I mean, it's, it's no different for depression than it is for things like cancer and other very serious conditions. Um, so stigma plays a big role. And actually, employers have done studies that show their EAP, or employee assistance programs, are not being used very much at all. We've talked with some corporations that are baffled and say, you know, we have this confidential EAP system in place so that employees can call and get help when they need it. It's kind of the first step. They can get support, especially when they have depression. And yet, their rates of, rates of usage are exceptionally low. So they're really concerned that people are not coming forward when they know they need the help. And stigma plays a big role in that. Are we making progress on reducing stigma? I think we are. I actually think that um, some of the younger generations, there is this idea that they're more comfortable um, talking about and talking more openly about the fact that they experience depression and other mental health conditions. I think some of the high visibility um, 
folks have come out like Demi Lovato and Sarah Bareilles and others who have been willing, they're in the public eye, they're idols of young people, they've been willing to come out and talk openly about seeking treatment and getting help. That's always helpful. Um, and yet we have suicide at a 40-year high. So we're sort of asking the question, and that suicide is very closely connected with depression, so we keep asking, why aren't these numbers getting better? So I think we need to continue to work at it. I think things like UCLA is doing with screening helps to normalize it. If people, people are screened for a variety of things from a preventative perspective in healthcare. So this is adding on to that, and I think that may help with the issue of having people feel more comfortable. And then talking more about it and just normalizing it is, is extremely important as well. So you talked about employers, and I know this is your area of expertise. There, there is not only this need to, to address depression at an individual level, but there's also this need to, to address it at the economic level, because mm -hmm. a lot of people, I'm sure, miss work uh, because, because of depression and, and anxiety as well. So how does this affect companies' bottom line, and is that what's driving employers to get engaged in this issue? Absolutely. Actually, the, the World Mental Health Day this year in April really focused on depression in the workplace, and they put out a great report. Anyone who's interested, you can um, do a search on that and find a really comprehensive report they put out with great information and statistics. And basically what the studies show is that depression in the workplace costs employers about $210 billion a year. F half of that is made up of the direct healthcare costs associated with depression. But the other half, as Anna suggested, really is contributed, is, is, um, contributed by absenteeism, productivity, disability rates. There are very high disability rates with depression in the workplace. So employers are really looking more critically at these issues and really thinking about how do we, in a workplace, which is in a sense a community, how do we better address depression in the workplace along with other mental health conditions? And a, a large healthcare consulting firm did a survey that they published in March where they asked employers what their intentions were in the next three years around mental health. And they really shared that they have intentions to really get much more engaged. So they want to work on reducing depression, raising awareness among the workforce about what the early warning signs are, how managers and supervisors can really start conversations in a kind and compassionate way when they're worried about an employee, how they can help access to care. Accessing care is very complex in mental health. It's not like in primary care where you go in and get a throat, a throat swab if you, you're concerned about strep throat. The mental health system is hard to navigate, so employers are very interested in how do we help our employees navigate the system, how do we help them access care, how do we help to address the shortages in many communities of comprehensive care when it comes to depression and other conditions. That brings me right to the next question about mental health workforce shortages. There are shortages at all levels, from psychiatrists to psychologists to counselors um, to MFTs and communities. So what are some of the efforts, and, and any of you can jump in, in on this one, what are some of the efforts that are being done to address these workforce shortages across the country? Well, I'll start with that, because I've actually looked at this quite a bit. Um, so. I started working a lot in the advocacy and policy area around child and youth issues. And for example, there are about 8,300 child psychiatrists in this country with a need exceeding 20,000. So there are many families that we worked with at NAMI before I came to the American Psychiatric Foundation who would call us and say, there are three to six month waits for my child to see a child psychiatrist. And it's very problematic for families. So it's, it's very, you know, these are kids with really serious needs. There's significant workforce shortages on the adult side as well. So that is a result of lower reimbursement rates for mental health specialty. There is um, high burnout. There is some administrative burdens associated with psychiatry and, and dealing with some of the health insurance issues they have to deal with. So um, the workforce shortage is really deeply, deeply concerning. We call it a healthcare crisis in the mental health world. And what this has led to, actually, is a lot more focus on collaborative care. So there is a lot more, um, we're seeing a lot more primary care, um, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners. We're kind of seeing the workforce stretched by collaborative care models that are being developed around the country. Um, 
at the American Psychiatric Association and the uh, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, they worked very hard to get the billing codes available for collaborative care so that when primary care physicians and specialty mental health care providers are consulting on cases, they can be paid for that through the insurance system that we have, through billing codes. And also, that process of collaborative care is a very organic learning process. So primary care providers in their practices can learn a lot more about um, how to treat depression by working with uh, psychiatrists so that when they have other people that come along and they're working with other patients and individuals, they have a better sense of what's involved because they've had this chance to work on collaborative care cases. And then the only other thing I'd say along those lines is we're seeing a lot more how technology is getting much more active in the areas of telepsychiatry. There are a lot of apps being developed, online therapy. So it's, it's a little bit of a wild west out there right now because there's not really a process for evaluating some of this technology that's being developed. And there's concerns around that as well. But I think technology, especially when it comes to depression, will continue to play a bigger role in the future. So perhaps I could pick Please. up on that. So, so one of the things that we've been doing in the Depression Grand Challenge is trying to answer that very question. So there, as you say, there's many technologies out there and we don't really know which is the best one. And these are both ways of assessing depression and also of treating it. So the fundamental problem we face is that the diagnosis is still made basically by a doctor talking to a patient. We have no observable features, no, no really um, measurable features, and we'd like to get that. So the idea is to take technology, put an app on your phone, maybe some wearable device, collect lots of information from people, and then try and work out which of those is predictive and which of those can tell us whether you're going to get the condition, whether you're responding to treatments. And ideally, well, maybe in, under some scenarios, your phone might know before you do that you're going to get depressed and will then phone your therapist or ring you up and say, hey, you need to come in and talk a bit. And would that be based on, on sleep or on... How, yeah. What's that based on? So, you know, it's interesting. A combination of, of sensors, and we have actually one investigator at UCLA recently is using a combination of measuring sleep activity, uh, tweets, actually, literally social media representing and picking up between a combination of the way you use social media plus your sleep habits, uh, your level of activity, which, which changes, trying to find sort of what the correlates are, the first signs of a student becoming depressed. So I think the technology is going to play a huge role, including artificial intelligence, really literally, you know, the Alexas of the world that can talk to you and pick up in, even in your voice changes. So I think, the, you know, this is an area that's a little spooky, but also a very promising area as well. And fascinating. I would like to add to the, the issue around workforce. Mm -hmm. um, I think more recently, probably in the last 10 years, there's been an addition to the workforce as it relates to behavioral health, and that, are, that is peers. Peers are individuals who have lived through the experience, let's say, have been depressed, have been treated, who work alongside professionals to help patients become engaged in treatment. It's peers many times who are the ones who can reach out to individuals who may be feeling uh, resistant to getting into treatment and be able to talk to them from an experiential level and actually put into words what an individual is feeling, which helps that individual to feel as though I'm not alone. Someone else has experienced the same thing, and it really becomes more inviting for them to be engaged in treatment. So a lot of the patient-centered medical home models not only includes the physician, the psychiatrist, the social worker, psychologist when needed, but also now is including peers uh, as part of the team. And it seems like it would be a guide towards recovery for many people. I wanted to come back to the telepsychiatry. So I was actually in your home state, Idaho, last year and saw this in action in a very small community where they said there were more bears in the town than people. <laughs> and it was a tiny, tiny hospital. And they were using telepsychiatry to, to the university, you know, 100 miles away. And it seemed to be very effective. So is it in places rural America and rural California, is this, is this essential? It certainly is very essential when you have a lack of providers, and particularly when you are in a rural area, and in Idaho you have 14 uh, communities that are called frontier, which means that there are six people per square mile. Okay? <laughs> so you never Hard to imagine. Right? <laughs> You'll never have enough people to, to service that, that uh, population. But let's think about it. Let's go back many years ago. Because when I was in practice, one of the things that 
and many people have been in practice, you use a telephone before telehealth uh, where you have an actual audio-visual. Telephone is quite powerful. Crisis lines, suicide lines have used that for a long time because it is the ability to reach out and be able to understand what, and listen, actively listen to someone, which helps them feel as though they've been heard and helps them feel a lot better in that connection, which is real, real important. So yes, it is very, very important. Given the workforce shortage can't be everywhere, it allows for there to be that connection, even if there isn't a provider in your area. Chancellor, let me come back to you. We're having this discussion, obviously, in Los Angeles, which is incredibly diverse. Uh, so what sort of challenges are presented uh, when dealing with this issue in a, in a place such as California that is so ethnically, linguistically, culturally diverse? And, and are there differences in access to care, willingness to access care in different ethnic groups? Well, there are, there are some challenges. I mean, this is, uh, cuts across all demographics, depression. So you have to be concerned about every component of the population. And I, you know, I think the solution here, and it's very challenging, is to make sure you have a diverse workforce that's actually treating individuals. There's no substitute for having physicians and, and, and support personnel that also have diverse backgrounds to better understand communities. And uh, we're pushing very hard to do this to make sure that we can we can create a workforce that m better matches our community and i think that's a, i think an important component of it uh, you know women's health issues were not dressed as aggressively as they should have been until there were more women physicians and more women in a, in a position to make decisions about where nih should be focusing so i think there's no substitute for just really good representation within our you know medical community and are there differences in incidence of depression among different ethnic groups Yes, there, there are. They're not great and in terms of like huge differences. And they depend also on what, uh, going back to this issue what I discussed earlier about the severity and the type of depression. Um, but yes, there are differences. There's a big gender difference. And there's a very big, big gender, gender difference. difference. That's a good point. What is the gender difference? So it's about, um, if you look at, um, if you ask in a group, like this group here, whether you've ever had a single episode, then we'd expect about 20%, 15 to 20% of women to say yes, whereas men it would be about 12%. Because they're not depressed or because they're unlikely to come forward and say they're depressed? No, it's pretty clear that it's because they haven't had depression. It's commoner it. in women. So let me go back to the issue of, of kind of that collaboration between primary care and mental health care. So there's, there's this link, right, between depression and physical health. And as one example, failing to diagnose and treat mental health problems could lead to far costlier visits to the ER or hospitals later. So what are some of the other connections between um, mental health and physical health or depression and physical health? And are there any other kind of successful models being put forth to, to bring them closer together, to bring these providers closer together? Well, I, I would say that um, there are models that are in place to not only bring uh, a connection between behavioral health and medical services, but to bring accountability to the system that's delivering care. That's very, very important. So let me give an example. Um, one example would be, which has happened to me several times, where people will call, most of them friends, will call and say, I have a son who has depression or schizophrenia or bipolar, and they won't go and see the psychiatrist or the social worker or the therapist that they were seeing. Well that family is kind of stuck because that professional doesn't have an obligation to reach out when a patient stops coming. Okay. In an accountable system, the provider has an accountability when they touch that person. That person is now in their denominator for the performance metrics that are used as we're going forward in terms of paying for performance rather than paying for the volume of people that you see. The difference with that is that it helps the patient to have someone who's really looking out for them, someone who's going to follow them through their journey and follow them even though they become resistant to having that type of, of treatment. 
that means that provider will have to help and have to find ways to engage that person again. And that's where a team approach is very, very helpful in terms of re-engaging individuals. Without that kind of delivery system, without accountability at every level, inpatient, ER, an intensive outpatient, a single outpatient therapist, without them working together and being able to measure the outcomes of their work and being accountable for the population that they touch, we have big gaps. We have a fragmented system. Bringing the accountability helps bring a system to be effective and be efficient. So another link, of course, with mental health and uh, issues and depression is substance abuse. Uh, we are not far here from Skid Row, where we see a lot of uh, you know, homeless folks and who are suffering from both uh, mental health issues and uh, substance abuse issues. And it's again crosses the economic and demographic um, spectrum. So some of the underlying causes may be early exposure to trauma and changes in, in brain composition. Does this kind of link with substance abuse or does the co-occurrence with substance abuse and depression make treating depression harder? Uh, Jonathan, do you want to take it that? It certainly makes it harder. Um, going back to your first question, the difficulty here is, again, distinguishing cause and consequence, because it may be that someone gets depressed and resorts to, to drugs as a way of trying to alleviate the symptom, or it may be because they've taken drugs that they then get depressed. It's very hard to distinguish those two. So how do you do it? Well, in a simple circumstance, if you're seeing a patient, you'd really have to dig hard and try and work out what happened first. Um, and that's sometimes possible, but you've got to remember that people's memories aren't necessarily what they are. And also people don't want to talk about things that have happened. It's a, it's a hard problem. And I'm sure figuring out the treatment for it is harder it's even, too, It's right? even worse because the things are going to get so confounded, yes. So we mentioned suicide earlier in the discussion. Um, depression, of course, being one of the, the greatest risk factor for suicide. What are the best ways to reduce the number of suicides among this population of people who have depression? And is improved treatment the answer? Well, one thing is going to be recognition. I mean, at the moment, we're not good at recognizing. We have a, uh, a set of um, criteria which clinically we'd use to try and indicate who is most likely to, to, put, to be at risk, but they're, they're not particularly effective. And um, it really revolves around some things we were discussing earlier about what we might learn from more observable features. If we could find things which would help us with this, that would be the biggest step forward in order to, to stop this happening. At the moment, we have a big problem. Um, so one of the things that UCLA has done, which the Chancellor has already mentioned, was send out uh, this screening item so we could actually try and find out whether people were at risk. And even that's a very s simple thing to do. And that, as we've discovered, has made a huge difference. So w what, what you sh I think you need to be clear about is about half the people who we could do something for don't come forward. Mm -hmm. So just by sending out a simple, like, we could do something for you if you feel like it, contact us. That makes a really big difference. And we've picked up how many people who were suicidal? Is it 90-something? 90, about 100 or so, wow. which we wouldn't have uh, picked up before this. So in a simple way, you can say, chance to save the lives of 100 people. I think, too, it's very important to um, help educate and inform people about the, the signs and symptoms of depression and it's still a taboo topic. We still, mental health is still, for so many, a taboo topic. So we all have a responsibility to normalize. And once we recognize the early warning signs of depression, they're pretty distinct. It's, especially with younger people, because I, I think this always worries me. Maybe it's having two kids in college, but it's having, seeing a friend and knowing that something is changing and, and just kind of writing it off, which I think we do sometimes and saying, you know, oh, ha you know, just there's something going on or, and I think we need to learn how to ask more questions and to say, are you okay? And I'm noticing things are looking different with you and I'm worried about you. And there is this notion that asking about suicide puts the thought in someone's mind and in fact, the absolute opposite is true. The research shows if you're worried someone may be suicidal, the best thing you can do is ask them. And that's, an important, that's important information to get out there.
because, again, I, I always thought that would plant the seed for so long until I really happened to read a research study that said, no, in fact, the opposite is true. So, and actually, there was research done at Columbia University a number of years ago in which they had people who had a very serious attempt of, at suicide, and they didn't succeed, fortunately, but they were asked, you know, why didn't you tell someone? And they said, nobody asked. And I thought that was really quite uh, interesting. And many of them had seen a primary care physician shortly before they'd had an attempt. So again, I think the more we talk in forums like this, this is a wonderful way to talk about depression and to talk about early warning signs and screening and, and how to kind of engage others. And actually, we're working with um, Ernst & Young, and they created, of course, a giant firm worldwide. They created a program in the workplace called Are You OK? And it's all about informing their employees worldwide about warning signs and kind of what does it look like and how do you, as a, as a coworker, start a conversation to ask someone if they're OK in a way that makes everybody feel comfortable. So I think the more we do that, we can really we can really put a dent in suicide in this country. We just have to really be more deliberate, I think, about it. You know, I'd like to just emphasize what you say is exactly true. You do have to ask. It doesn't hurt. Uh, you don't have to be a health professional to ask that question. But I agree, it's also very hard to get people to take that on board. But it's really important that we do this. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other signs and symptoms, since you mentioned that? What are things that people should be looking toward, looking for? Well, I think in depression, I mean, I'm, you're, you're probably bigger expert than I am. Go ahead. Um, but I think things like uh, losing interest in things they previously enjoyed doing, spending a lot of time sleeping, not coming to work, not showing up at work, um, you know, not being able to concentrate, not being able to make decisions, being really indecisive. In teens, it can look very different, as I understand. It, there can be aggression involved. They can really act out. So. Um, that's, that's basically true. You can also get the opposite, so it might be someone who sleeps less than normal. Typically people lose appetite, lose their interest in food, may lose weight, but there are also some people who put on weight. Mm -hmm. So you, you, it can get a little hard to pick this up. I mean, I really think it's... It's a change from normal, it's really. Change. I mean, that's exactly. The I was thing. just about to say that. I think I mean, it's, it's when you see a, a change, and it's not for something you can explain away, like a death or a divorce or... And it's happening for more, it's two weeks or more, you know, you're really seeing it as a pattern. Then it's time to have a conversation, I think. Mm. So before we open it up to the audience, I, I want to ask a, kind of a little more uplifting question, uh, which is tough in a discussion about depression and suicide. Um, but if you could do one thing to address this epidemic of depression, money is no, option, no object, uh, you can change policy if you want, whatever you want or think could do, you could do to really target this and make an impact, what would that be? Let's start with you, Chancellor. <laughs> and I know you're already starting with this depression <laughs> grand so challenge. I, mean, I, you know, I think reducing the stigma, because what you're really dealing with is many things, non-reporters, uh, people that are not seeking help. And even at the university, I've talked to students who know students who are struggling alone, who are worried that it might get in their records somehow and it might affect their future employment. I've heard that from people in employment situations, worried about their careers, that any knowledge at all about struggling with these issues. So I'd say reducing the stigma would be, would be a very, very big contribution. You know, one thing that uh, individuals have talked about in, in this area now is to actually start referring to these issues as brain health issues, not mental health issues. You know, the, as we know, when you work with the brain, the, 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 the boundaries between the physiological processes and the psychological processes, it's, it's awfully gray, those areas. They merge together. If you're just really thinking about brain health, whether it's a neurodegenerative disease or you know, or or a behavioral health, a behavioral disease that maybe using a term that isn't so loaded as even mental health, might be helpful. Is that someone talks about their brain health? You know, it, it leads to a, a different feeling than talking about either mental health or even behavioral health for that matter. So, again, I think reducing the stigma would be a very important contribution. And I think the terminology is starting to change. Nobody really, you don't hear often anymore, just snap out of it. Can you snap out of that depression? Right. That it's really starting to, to, to be seen as more of what it is, a I brain think, disease. I think words matter here, they really do. Mm -hmm. Rhonda? 
It's almost like world health or world <laughs> peace here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> but there are real solutions, of course, as you all know. There are real solutions. I, I think if one thing that we could have, where money is no object, I think really to be able to better understand the type of treatment that will be effective for which patient. So being able to really differentiate the treatment to that particular person. So it's really what I would call personalized medicine. So if there's genetic factors, if there's environmental factors, if there's certain ways that their brain functions, to be able to really find that so that treatment is effective from the beginning. Jonathan? So I think um, what I would definitely like to do is understand why people get depressed. If we don't understand the causes, we can't really change things, at least in a, in a rational way. And that's why I'm sitting here today, because I came to UCLA to help with this really revolutionary, visionary project that the university set up, the Depression Grand Challenge, which is a study of 100,000 people. And one other thing I should just say, it's really encouraging to see so many people come uh, on a Monday evening to hear us talk about depression. It's like, <laughs> I think that's uplifting. <laughs> I and agree we, with that. Darcy, before we get to you, Jonathan, mm -hmm. you, you said we don't really understand the causes, and we don't also understand the difference why some people maybe have short bursts of depression situationally versus some people who have severe depression, Thank right? you for picking that up. So it's, that's definitely true, and, uh, and we maybe didn't emphasize enough. This is a, this is, people don't get depression once. Uh, it's very rare. Most people get it multiple times throughout their lives. And we need to understand not only why people get depressed, but why they get depressed again and again and again. Darcy? So I, I, I like the stigma idea. I don't want to use that one again. But I think, um, I also think I'd like to see some really strong leadership because I think leadership whether it's in a corporate setting or in a political setting or, I mean, I, I think we need to have some leadership around um, addressing mental health in a more, and depression is part of that, in a more um, national, systematic way. I don't think we've done a good job at helping people access care, and I don't think there's been the kind of leadership that we need as a nation to really help people accept they have a condition, know how to get help, and really recover and sustain recovery. So I think leadership to really make a mental health system that works for people with depression would be a very a big, uh, lofty accomplishment. I'm going to add that I think more awareness, and, and that's where I hope that people like me come in, is, is telling the stories of people with the depression, telling stories of people who are recovering, um, and, and just raising awareness, and events like this do that as well. So on that note, we're going to hand it over uh, back to Zoclo to start the question and answer. My name is Christopher Rivas. Uh, I have a question about what didn't come up, what kind of came up. You said Twitter. Um, especially with the young people you're working with at UCLA, which is the cause of social media and comparing your life to everyone else's life constantly by scrolling through a feed um, and how that effect, if, if that comes up in your, in your screenings and in your talks. I mean, that's one of the things that we hope, initially at least, just to monitor, because we'd like to know whether that's indicative, as you've said it could be, of whether somebody is getting depressed and would it, whether it would allow us to develop an early warning system so that we could help people in ways that would be effective, yes. And it will be interesting to see too whether it does become, if there will be research on if it, if it is a contributing factor. Yes. Yeah, I think that's such a great question because I actually think the teen depression rate is really going up very quickly. And there is some speculation that social media and the constant interaction has something to do with that. If you're interested in looking more at that issue, there's a, a book that was written called What Makes Maddie Run about a young woman at the University of Pennsylvania who was a runner and um, died by suicide. And the ESPN author who wrote that book did an exhaustive look at kind of social media. It's not a, from a research perspective, but I really think it gives you a sense of the pressure because Maddie was at Penn just looking so happy and they had Instagram pictures right up to um, the time when she died by suicide. And it just, it, it's shocking that this young woman who looked so perfect in every uh, Instagram post could have been so in such despair. 
So I think that's such an important question to raise. Um, you had mentioned ECT, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you made it sound like that procedure was done involuntarily. Um, and one of, one of my issues with that, especially with ECT, is that there are long-term side effects, and including, um, I know people who have had ECT who have went back into depression or even suicidal. One of the um, the groups that is um, most likely to um, die by suicide or attempt survivors like myself. So what do you say to that um, about people who um, you save their life, but they're still suicidal? The, the root of what's causing them to be so depressed is never addressed, which is oftentimes buried trauma. So just to be clear, in the, the example I gave you, it, this was voluntary. So we discussed this with the patient. We didn't administer this against her will. That happens extremely rarely. Uh, and to get to the second point you were asking about, which was what do we do if we successfully stop them killing themselves and make them feel better, we don't deal with the root cause. That gets back to what we've been discussing throughout this meeting, which we don't know what causes depression. Until we answer that question, we're not going to be in a position to cure it. But also, is, is, the, is that treatment used exclusively, or is it usually in combination with talk therapy or CBT? So it's at the moment, ECT is very much a last resort, mm -hmm. and it would have been after you've tried everything else. Uh, Gary Raymond. Um, so I have a question. Um, if anyone's doing research on the physiological result of electromagnetic energy that we're in a sea of, just as, just as with the Porter Ranch event where people you know, were feeling nauseous and nobody could see anything until they did infrared and they saw these huge billowing clouds, we are, our five senses do not see the, all the electromagnetic energy that we're in. And I'm wondering if some of the, if there's been an increase, especially with people using cell phones more and that kind of thing, if obviously some of it's psychological, that was one of the first questions, but if there isn't also a physiological effect of that effect, you know, is anybody doing research on that? Yes, there's, there's been some work on this. I mean, that's obviously been an issue for many diseases, but as far as I know, no one's found any connection, not with depression at least. You were talking about not being able to detect depression and suicidal tendencies and that type of thing. And whenever I hear that, I always think of Robin Williams as a case mm. study, and it breaks my heart to hear that. And I think a lot of us were kind of moved and shook by that. Mm. And nobody, possibly nobody detected it, as, you know, as far as we know, or maybe somebody does. But he was always kind of, and I hear this from different stories and anecdotes, that comedians and people like that have a high um, uh, rate of depression. And, and like Robin Williams, I'd just like to hear what you guys have to say about that, because it always, in these discussions like this, it always comes up. So I guess it goes back to that question of undiagnosed and people that we don't necessarily know may have depression, whether they're you know, famous people or, or people in your community. Is that still a big problem? Well, I think it is a big problem, but I think one of the things you have to keep in mind, there's depression and then there's bipolar where people will have manic episodes, which many times uh, has been associated with Robin Williams, such that during that manic phase, they're very energetic, they're very funny. If you've watched his style, you can just throw it out. Very successful executives many times have that kind of energy which makes them to be very, very successful. But just as they can get that high, they can also get that low in terms of depression. Why we didn't know that about Robin Williams, I think, a lot of his life was personal and it was confidential. So there's things we don't know that was going on in his life. We know that he was suffering, at least it was said in the media, he was suffering with some type of brain disorder that was starting to decrease his functionality, which would be another stress for him at that point and maybe the, the trigger that made him decide he didn't want to live any longer with that particular condition. But I don't know exactly, but you gotta keep in mind Bipolar. Bipolar has a higher incidence of suicide attempts than, than most mental illnesses. Hi, I'm Kara Pfeiffer, and my particular question is, for those of us who are non-specialists, what can we do? And in particular, I work with youth and children, and many of them come from areas where they're dealing with poverty um, and a lot of trauma, and I work with some kids who have been sexually abused, and so there's that 
kind of PTSD aspect that's related to both anxiety and depression in their lives. And so what are the best things that those of us who are non-specialists can do, especially with people who have really troubling um, backgrounds, in addition to, of course, always encouraging them to get help. But besides that, what, can, what else can we do? I think one thing you could do, which I'm sure you do anyway, is just talk and then listen to them. That can be really, really helpful. And then not hold back from asking the questions that we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Just to find out from them just how serious this is. If you, could do, if you don't ask that question, you're not going to know. And what's interesting is sometimes when you start conversations, because I've seen presentations done, especially in high school, I realize it's a little trickier with younger ones, but sometimes when you have someone who, who comes forward and says, you know, I have depression and I'm going to tell you what that's like and what it's like for me. Afterwards, kids who are experienced it will come forward. I mean, kids are not afraid often to say, that's me, that's what I'm feeling, that's what I'm experiencing. So I think the more you expose them, not just to have conversations, but also to find different ways to kind of expose them to what it means to experience that, very gently, obviously, the younger, the more gently, but really, the one-on-one -on -one contact, by the way, in terms of stigma, that is a very effective way to help educate and inform people about a depression and other conditions is to have someone come forward and say, I'm living with depression, I have episodic times, I get treatment just like any other health issue, and I go on with my life and live in recovery. It gives people hope. They have, that, they have their myths and, and the misperceptions just kind of dashed, and it can be a very effective way. But with children, sometimes if they just hear someone else, they might say, oh, that's me. So that too can be helpful. You also touched on an issue in your question that we didn't address too much that perhaps one of the panelists wants to address, and that is poverty and, and trauma and how that may impact depression and incidents of depression. Is there a connection? There was a very, very large study done called um, ACE, the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Mm -hmm. And basically, I don't know if you're familiar with the ACEs study, but obviously the more adverse childhood experiences that children have, the more likelihood it is they'll experience a, a mental health condition and substance use as an adult. So um, that's a wonderful study to show. The more uh, things they have stacked up against them, um, things like socioeconomic challenges, um, it, you know, where they live, if there's violence in the community, uh, parental discord, and you know, parents who are, you know, there are lots of different factors that all play into whether a child is likely to develop it. But, I would say the more risk factors you know exist in the community, the more important it would be to be addressing mental health in your program. So maybe even bringing in a child therapist or just to not to you know, diagnose any kids, but just to have conversations with kids. They might help you since you're not a, a professional in that field. Hi, my name's Yael Swerdlow. I have two questions actually. First one is art therapy, um, music, uh, specifically combined possibly with the technology are you doing any initiatives with that? And then the second question is about the um, Heads Together, uh, Prince Harry and Princess, Prince William and uh, um, Princess uh, Kate, I think. Um, how, how, do you have statistics on how their effort to bring mental health awareness into the, into the UK, has that helped? So, so no, we don't, we don't have a, a, a specific um, uh, program around that. We've concentrated much more on the cognitive and psychotherapies um, to uh, which we know we can deliver remotely. It'd be very hard to give art therapy, I think, on a large basis, uh, on a large scale. You do so see that a lot in schools, however, in school it. mental health yeah. programs and behavioral health programs. Yeah, it's, it's something that has been promoted with children because it's a way of their expressing their feelings and they will do it more freely. They don't realize what they're doing, but they're actually telling their story by drawing the pictures that they see. Um, this also has been done with adults, but not as powerful as a when someone is severely depressed. But what it is is a part of treatment and it's a way of expressing what's going on, particularly when someone may not be able to articulate it at all. That's probably the most difficult state to be in where you're feeling something, something's happening, but you don't know how to put it in a category or how to talk about it. That's where talking with peers who are experienced, that's the Me Too piece that we talked about earlier is very, very important because once you realize someone else is feeling the same way I am, they've put it into words that make sense to me. 
I can now start addressing that because now I understand what it is. It's very, very difficult because depression, particularly in kids, can express itself in so many different ways besides being unhappy, sad, isolated. They also become very angry, but they also have things like headaches, unexplained stomach pain, dizziness. These are kind of signs of trauma, exposure to trauma, many times can be expressed this way, and overeating. Uh, I think in the ACEs study they showed many people were overweight and actually that was related to early trauma that they've experienced, particularly sexual trauma. But with two preteens at home, some of those issues that you're saying, stomach aches, headaches, stress, anger, that also could be puberty. I mean, it's so, just as a parent or a non-clinician, it's hard to distinguish those changes. But I think what you'll see with kids who are expressing their emotions that way, it's con is constant. It starts very early and it continuously is a pattern that you'll see with children who express the, their, their uh, emotions somatically. Sure found uh, the cutting-edge research in genetic and biological perspectives very enlightening. I'm also thinking to uh, Emil Durkheim's classic uh, study on suicide from a sociological perspective, and the, the broad theme of depression as an epidemic, you know, uh, from a macro level is what attracted me to this meeting. So I'm wondering if there's any um, correlations or connections in uh, your studies or in the literature with uh, social or sociological dynamics, how much are there, uh, um, particularly in China, are we talking urban, rural, where there's traditional kinship versus, you know, uh, issues are often with urban development and dislocation, social dislocation. Uh, I'd, I'd be, anyone that has any kind of commentary on connection between the individual and biological with broader social or sociological dynamics. So, so in the, the study we did in China, we were focused on a very specific group, as I've said. So we couldn't really ask uh, in, in terms of the difference between where we collected them from, where they, what their backgrounds were, because that was pretty uniform. However, there was one thing we did look at, which is I wondered whether the date of birth might tell us something, because people, for example, who'd been put through um, in their early teens the Cultural Revolution might have had a different outcome. Rates might be higher in, in that particular group. And we looked pretty hard, and I couldn't convince myself there was anything there, but I don't think we had enough of a sample to really be certain about that. But to answer your, your question more broadly, we, we, we know what you say is generally true, that there would be effects of society. We've already mentioned how social economic consequences uh, environments can, can impact on depression. Basically, there's more depression where there's more poverty. There's no, no doubt about that. And one of the things that, that happens in UCLA is that the, the, the study is, is campus-wide. So we include economists in our team and sociologists to answer these questions. But we won't have answers to that until we've collected this large, this large sample. Hello, um, my name's Charlene. And um, there has not been a mention tonight about um, um, I see I'm even having a hard time mentioning it, um, postpartum depression mm. or um, anything that has to do with women and our hormones. And um, what are the initiatives or efforts or ways to, that has been made to address this? Because, um, for example, I personally, I'm a, I'm a single mother, I'm an immigrant mother, I'm a young mother, I'm a divorced mother. <laughs> Um, all these things, but I have not personally found a place where I can actually, uh, one, I don't feel comfortable, I'm dealing with it now, but feel comfortable to even address the fact that I could be depressed because I have to be strong for my child. And so, but there is no places for us to find help or to even address this. So what are the initiatives for this? What we did in China was solely in women largely for this reason, because it's more prevalent and there are these additional issues that, that arise. And the second thing is that we've already started uh, discussing with the obstetrics and gynecology departments in, in UCLA that we should recruit people from there, because as you say, it, it, it is a big problem and we would like to understand it. Let me um, ask the panelists, because this question is, is a good one to raise this. 
because we have an audience that is obviously very interested in this topic, and there may be um, some undiagnosed depression uh, in the audience, uh, and definitely for our, for the listeners, where are some other resources that you would recommend people go to to seek more information or care? Well, I am formerly with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. There's Mental Health America. There are advocacy organizations, and they have support groups that I think could be very helpful. Um, so those are two to name just to, I know they have offices in uh, Los Angeles. Um, and they have um, many, many support groups that could be, I think, quite helpful. They could also help you access care if you feel like, and, and be helpful, I think, with that sort of it takes a village kind of approach. If you are a single mother, you may need help with childcare. I mean, they can be helpful in other ways that can allow you to have a little time so you can go to see a professional and get some help. So I would really encourage you to seek out um, at mental health advocacy organizations and I think Mental Health America has a wonderful um, chapter in this area. So I, there are probably many others. Um, yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, I don't know all of them, but I think that's, that's a really good place to start. Are there any other resources that anybody else would add? Um, not just for uh, the, the question, but in general. I would encourage you to look at the UCLA Grand Challenge page because it actually has quite a long <laughs> list. I was hoping one of you would, but it actually does have a long list of the research that's going on as well as resources. All right, before we end, I'd like to first thank our co-presenter tonight, UCLA, for making this program possible. So a big round of applause for them, please. And also to the Japanese American National Museum for letting us call this beautiful place home here for Zocalo. Um, but the conversation is not over. We'd like to invite you to join us outside in the lobby for the reception. All our featured guests will be joining us so you can continue the conversation directly with them. And finally, one final big round of applause for our panelists this evening. Thank you.